would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll begin reading this morning in verse 2 and continue on to the end of the chapter. This is another one of those passages in which the Apostle Paul is having to defend something of his ministry. It's a recurring theme throughout uh, the second epistle of why he's doing what he's doing. What are his motives and, and why does it seem he's so mean in that regard? Um, but we'll see that he's not at all, in fact. Let's, let's look at the text, uh, beginning verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Make room in your hearts for us, Paul says. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice, because I have complete confidence in you. Let's pray together. Father, we lift up to you our hearts as we look at the reflection of our own soul within the mirror of your word. We pray Fathers, we contemplate what has happened in the church in Corinth and how the believers there responded to the harsh letter that Paul had written previously. We pray, Father, that you would help us to know how to respond when confronted uh, by the truth that is at times revealed, showing forth the sin in our own souls. We pray, Father, that we would have the same comfort and hope that the Corinthians had, that we would have the same confidence in Christ Jesus that they shared with the Apostle Paul. We pray, Father, that you would continue to encourage us here and now to trust you, to rely upon the good news of the gospel, and to learn to love 
you and our neighbor as ourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I suspect many of you already know where I'm going with this, with my beginning comments. Uh, Peanuts comic strip, right? Charles Schultz. There's an image that many of us have etched into our brains. If you've read the comic or have you seen some of the, uh, the short movies based upon the comics, it's that recurring scene where Lucy pulls the football away from Charlie Brown at the last minute just as he's about to kick it time after time. He believes that he's going to be able to kick the ball, and nevertheless, we know that she's not going to allow it to happen. But his hope is infectious, and for a time we begin to root for him, hoping that maybe this time, maybe this time he'll be able to kick the ball. But no, it doesn't happen. We all know that Lucy's promise proves to be empty again and again as she pulls the ball away at the last moment, leaving Charlie Brown to feel that same sarcastic way that he finally is able to express how he really feels, that iconic phrase, what? Good grief. Good grief. Again? But we know it's not good grief because... Charlie never learns from this. He continues to trust in Lucy, probably shouldn't. And Lucy also isn't uh, a good friend. She continues to exasperate Charlie Brown again and again. There doesn't seem to be any good coming from this at all. In in fact, uh, this recurring scene that we see in these comics uh, has bothered so many of Uh, Schultz's readers that they wrote to him numerous times begging to allow Charlie to kick the ball and each time they wrote to him when he bothered to write them back he said uh, it just goes against the character of Charlie Brown I'm not going to allow him to kick the ball and so he didn't and later he regretted the fact that he didn't I think Um, well it's not exactly the same scenario but in our passage this morning the Apostle Paul is expressing a similar regret over some misgivings that he had and how he approached this situation with the Corinthians. If you remember, we've been uh, discussing this prior a number of times. Paul had written a letter to the church that was kind of harsh and kind of to the point, correcting them, rebuking them because they had failed to take action on a particular church discipline case in which there was a man who had committed egregious sin in their midst and they didn't do anything about it. And so he had written this letter and yet had not heard the reply from his people. And it seemed as if they were quite aloof and did not do what he said. And so uh, he was sort of left in this limbo, if you will, between the Apostle Paul and the church that he had planted. He has no idea whether or not they have responded in love or whether they've continued to hold a grudge against him in some way. And Paul is, is, is writing to tell them that He did regret writing the letter at first, but now that more news has developed, he has actually rejoiced in their grieving. Sounds kind of strange that someone would say, I rejoice that you're grieving. Uh, But in fact, he is quite happy and delighted that their grief has led to something good and something glorious in in the sight of God. Now that his regret has passed, Titus, if you remember, uh, again, Paul has mentioned this already, Titus has come and told them the good report of how well they did receive this initial letter that seemed harsh, and yet it had led them to 
uh, change how they treated this man who was under discipline and also how they treated the Apostle Paul himself. And so Paul's primary emphasis in this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is he's showing a clear distinction between what he calls godly grief and what we might refer to as worldly sorrow, that there's a huge difference between the two. Even though tears may be shed in, in both situations, the nature and actions of godly grief stand in stark contrast to that of worldly sorrow. And the primary difference between the two, Paul explains in verse 10. He says very plainly that godly grief leads to repentance, whereas the latter leads only to regret. So what is repentance? Uh, there's a, a book I would highly recommend to you if you've never read it by uh, Thomas Watson. It's just called The Doctrine of Repentance. He lays out a number of ways in which you can see repentance but I'm not going to focus on that this morning, rather just focus on what Paul says here in our text. But basically, repentance in the Greek literally means to, to change your mind. You, you change your mind about a number of things. When you're under conviction of sin, a godly person, convicted by the Spirit, begins to take on the mind of Christ and begins to put off his old mindset in regards to his sin. There's a, a huge difference between the way a spirit-filled man responds to his sin and the way a person who's just walking in the ways of his flesh responds to that same sin. Because of this godly grief, he takes on a godly response in repentance, but not so the worldly man. The worldly man may be grieved by the consequences of his sin. Perhaps he's lost a friendship because of the actions that he's taken, uh, because of the sin that he's committed. Perhaps he's lost respect in the eyes of others that he bemoans. Perhaps he's lost something of his possessions because of the choices he's made. Maybe he's lost his job. Maybe he's lost a number of things, and he will grieve over all of these things, and it'll be real and genuine grief, but grief over the wrong things. For he'll grieve over the consequences of a sin, but he will not grieve over his sin itself. And therefore, he never changes his mind over the things that matter the most. He will not change his mind when it comes to what he's actually done or what he's actually said or, or even the attitude with which he has approached the matter. Godly grief, on the other hand, is, is sorrowing not just over the consequences of the sin, but over the fact that I am a, still a sinner who falls short of the glory of God in such miserable ways and still does not know how to love my neighbor as I should. Godly grief immediately is flooded with this realization that I don't love God and I don't love my neighbor as well as I think I do. And that should make me begin to change my mind about the things that I have done, about the things I've said, about the attitude that I've taken. This type of grief over our sin is what leads us to abundant life here and now. It's what leads us to that salvation that God promises us without regret that leads to life and not to death. Worldly grief, on the other hand, can masquerade as godly grief at times. Someone can genuinely repent tears. They can say, I'm sorry that I've done these things, but then an hour later, they have the same mindset. No, it's it's not me, it's you. You've done it. You've said it all wrong. It, everything's awful, and I, I'm justifying myself all over again. It's a horrible, false picture of repentance. 
And I'll tell you, honestly, as a pastor, I've seen it so many times in the church where someone does not know how to repent. And I tell you, faith and repentance go hand in hand. If you don't know how to repent, you really don't have faith. They have to go together. In fact, uh, the Westminster Confession teaches us, it's one of our um, standards for our church that, that we have to ab- abide by as pastors and elders particularly, but it says that my job as a pastor is to continue to teach repentance and not just faith. Why? Because people don't want to hear it. They don't like it. It's hard and difficult. But I swear to you, if you don't repent, you will never know the abundant life that Christ promises. You will never taste the joys of heaven if you don't grapple with your sin. You have to. And it's a wonderful thing, and I hope that by the end of the sermon you'll come to that same conclusion. It's interesting, the word regret in the English language literally means to regreet the same matter over and over again. So in other words... uh, uh, think of it like this. Uh, I told you I wouldn't use any biking illustrations for at least six months, but <sighs> there was a biker who had gotten a tattoo, and it was his first tattoo, and he's very excited about it. And the tattoo literally said this No regrets. Of course, it was meant to say no regrets, but he regreeted that same tattoo every day on his own skin. Because it didn't change, you see. Now, as ridiculous as that illustration is, that's literally the way the unrepentant sinner continues to attack the circumstances that have caused the conflict in his life. He doesn't change his mind. He still sees it the wrong way. He does not look at it from God's perspective. He does not look at it from his neighbor's perspective. All he cares to do is to justify his own sin. And he will do it again and again and again, regreeting the same issue in the wrong way again. And it's such an ugly thing. No change of heart, no change of mind, just self-justification. We have to understand faith and repentance are only expressed by believers growing in the likeness of Christ. Something that's meant to be Something that's meant to occur not just when you first profess faith in Christ. I think all of us know that when we first come to salvation in Christ Jesus, we have to express some aspect of repentance. But if you really understand gospel sanctification, you must know that it's an ongoing act of faith and repentance again and again and again. You don't just repent once and then believe the rest of the time. No, you continue to express repentance. Why do you continue to express repentance? Because there's still sin that needs to be repented of. And the growing godly Christian knows that and deals with it accordingly. The problem is, what often happens in in the church is you have people who have quenched the Holy Spirit for so many years because they refuse to deal with the sin that's plainly right before them. They will not confess it. They will not repent of it, even though it's the one thing that would actually give them joy, that would truly do them good. They can't see it. So what does that repentance look like? Well, verse 11, Paul gives seven specific ways that the Corinthians manifested their repentance that was so obvious to Paul and to Titus 
that I wanted to share those same with you today, using their example as something that we could follow. The first manifestation for godly grief and repentance, in this case, is earnestness. So what were the Corinthians earnest for? As human beings, we're earnest for a lot of things. If you remember Oscar Wilde's play, The Importance of Being Earnest, you had two characters in that play that were very earnest to continue to sin and deceive others. Earnest in their sin. That's certainly not what Paul's talking about. But rather, Paul shares in verse 12 that he had written this difficult letter to the Corinthians in order that their earnestness for what? For him and his co-laborers in Christ might be revealed. He's saying he's writing this letter so that they would see how earnest they really are toward their brothers and sisters in, in Christ. Same manner, chapter 8, verse 8, the following chapter, he says that he sought to prove the earnestness of their genuine love. Then, verse 16 of chapter 8, Paul says that God had put it into the heart of Titus that the same earnest care that Paul himself had for the Corinthians, Titus now shares. So I think it's safe to say that when Paul is using the word earnest, given this very short context that Paul is writing, he's making it very plain that he wants them to be earnest in love, and they have in fact demonstrated some earnestness of love and care for him. And that repentance always ends in that way. There's a, not just a reconciliation, but an earnest love for the person that you have wronged. Why? Well, because the two greatest commandments are what? To love God and to love your neighbor. If you've really repented, then repentance restores the right relationship between both of those two parties, between God and your neighbor. So it's a restoration of love, an earnest love for the person at that moment when you were confronted, maybe you didn't like so much because they pointed out that there was something wrong with you or with me. Worldly grief, on the other hand, is earnest merely to avoid any more confrontation. You've seen this. You know what it's like. I, I've asked many times before people, if you try to go through that Matthew 18 process of church discipline, where in other words, someone has sinned against you and you go confront them, how well did that go? Splendidly. Swimmingly. They responded and said, oh, I thank you so much that you love me enough to come and tell me my sin that I might repent of it and learn how to love you better. Isn't that how they usually respond? I wish. Most of the time it gets very ugly, and if you bother to bring a second person or a third person in there to talk to the two of you, oh my, it can get even more ugly very, very quickly if the person doesn't know how to repent, because what do they do? They want to avoid you like the plague. They will do anything in their power to not have to see you. The funny thing was I was a pastor in a small church where I had some people that were upset with me personally about some things that we had changed in the church, and they took it personally. And, but it's a small town. You can't go to the grocery store without seeing me. And I'd see people literally go down the aisle, and then they see me, and then they quickly go down the other aisle, you know. And I just, for the fun of it, I'd be like, doing this kind of thing, you know. I'm still here, you know, and that kind of thing. You can't avoid me, you know. But I mean, it's one of those things I'm like, really, let's grow up. Stop pretending like you don't see me. You see me. You know, I know you hate my guts. Does it have to be this way? You know, am I really that much of an ogre that I'm just going to constantly berate you because of something you did? No. But the person who doesn't know how to repent doesn't get that, you see. They don't know how to love you. All they want to do is protect themselves. And so they avoid any aspect of confrontation 
and they'll avoid you at all cost. And even if they have to see you, you'll be so superficial. You'll, you'll begin to immediately sense the change in your relationship if there's no repentance. Because what they'll do is they'll still talk to you, but you can tell they still hate you. The way they talk to you, the way they change their attitude toward you, everything about it is different. It's strained. You know it feels awkward because you know there's not really repentance there. Just a lack of love. That's all it is. That's not godly grief. That's, that's the counterfeit. Secondly, godly grief and repentance also is manifest by an eagerness, Paul says. In this case, an eagerness to clear oneself in some way. Again, he's not meaning to clear ourselves of any wrongdoing in order to pronounce ourselves innocent and the other person guilty. No, the, the very nature of worldly grief does that. We, we seek to justify ourselves and blame the other person. That's what our MO is as sinners. But the word that, that Paul uses in the sense of clearing oneself is, is the Greek word apologia, from which we get the word apology, right? So sometimes the word apologia refers to the defense of the faith. We're giving a, literally the word means to, to say a word back in reply. When someone is critiquing Christianity, how are you going to respond to that? What's your, what's your answer to their questions, right? Well, in this case, it's not, well, I'm just apologizing to the person. I'm sorry that I did that. But, but rather, it's, it's giving a thoughtful, patient, kind, and loving reply to the person who has accused you of sin. So it's giving a proper word back in response. See, our, our natural tendency is to either become irate and say things awfully or not to say anything at all. Either we're passive or we're aggressively active in how we respond to these things. Paul's saying, if you're really growing in your love for God and for others, you'll begin to say, okay, I, I want to hear what you have to say. I may not agree with it. I may not agree with all the details, but nevertheless, I want to hear what you have to say. And, and you know, tell you what, let, let's pray because I already I sense myself becoming defensive. I don't want to be. I want to hear what you have to say. So let's, let's go through this. Um, and let me take notes if I have to. But let me, let me go through this and then give you a proper response in the same kind of response that we're required to give an unbeliever when they challenge us. I mean, what would you think of every time an unbeliever came to us and disagreed with us, we started yelling at them because they're wrong and we're right. That's how we treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ when we don't give them a proper apologia, you see. There's a, there's a, there's a good response to this and there's a bad response. Again, whether that's a, a pure confession immediately, which, you know, again, we, we would love to see that uh, if someone has really committed that particular sin, it may, on the other hand, also just be a simple clarification sometimes. Sometimes we may have misunderstood what that person has actually done or the attitude with which they had when they committed that particular action. And sometimes it just takes the person who has been accused of some sin to say, oh, I see what you're saying. I could see how that would have come across completely wrong. I'm so sorry. That's not what I meant. Let me explain to you what I did mean. You know, please forgive me, let me move on, you know, and let, let us move on together in, in love. That's, that's the goal, right? Uh, you want to, regardless of the accusation, the goal in the end is to do what? To love God and love your neighbor. So you want to restore even that relationship between you and the person who's confronted you. So if that's your goal, then you want to be able to hear and to give a good response. So it, it, it's not as complicated as it sounds, but when someone confronts us, over sin, not only can we be wrong, but the person confronting us at times can be wrong too in, in a number of things. They can make a, a number of faulty assumptions. So we need to be patient even in how 
we might have to correct those faulty assumptions. So again, we have to do that with love. You can't do it the other way around. Again, that's not our natural response. But here, here's, here's the big difference. The ungodly person who's not walking in the Spirit just doesn't want to have the conversation. They'll do anything to change the conversation, walk away, or immediately throw it back at you and say you're a horrible person, blah, blah, blah. Right? The godly person says, okay, we're sort of at an impasse here. I don't, I'm not sure what to do. Can we pray together? I, I, I want to love you, and I, I want to restore what, we've, what we're missing. Let, let's work on this. You see, now, now you're, you've stepped away from letting the devil split the two of you apart. And now you're saying, okay, well, I know I'm not as good as I think I am, so let me hear again what, what you've had to say. So there's, there's something to it. But it's, it's apology in the Greek sense is always the sense of I'm going to respond to you with some sort of kind and thoughtful reply. That's it. Then third, God the grief is also manifest by indignation. Well, that doesn't sound right. Indignation over what? Again, in any confrontation, a worldly man is indignant that you've pointed out his sin. He's also indignant with you and, and, and takes offense not only what was said, but how it was said, when it was said, where it was said, why it was said. I mean, they'll find a thousand reasons how you've done it all wrong. Again, someone walking in the flesh, they're just going to look for something to get out of the scenario, to get out of the situation, to get out of the accusation, and they focus on all those little details. Rather than weeding through the details and finding out what, what, what is the issue here? Where have I wronged you? Uh, let me overlook some of these things that maybe aren't right, but let me find out what is right and, and deal with that. Uh, it's, it's not, it, honestly, it doesn't really matter who has said it to you. You'll find some reason to be angry with them if you don't have the right spirit to receive it. Again, we, we're, we're constantly praying in the Lord's Prayer. What, what, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But do you really believe you have debts? Do you really believe that you owe something to someone else? You owe them love? You owe them forgiveness? You owe them confession of sin? These are things that we're supposed to be praying every day. If you're praying them every day, it's sort of like evangel. We talked about that before. You know, if you're praying your kingdom come, but then you're not telling anybody about God's kingdom, that seems kind of hypocritical, Right? If you're praying, Lord, forgive me my debts, but then I'm not going to admit any of my debts, also hypocritical. God gives us these types of prayers so that we're prepared. If we're praying this way on a regular basis, we're prepared for when someone points out that we actually do have a debt. We do have something that we owe. Maybe we ought to work on that. The godly man heeds correction. He's not indignant with his accuser. So why is he indignant? He's indignant over his own sin that has once again brought shame upon himself, that has brought some aspect of sliding to God and his holy word. Remember Job when after his three great friends kept accusing him of every sin under the planet, you know, because he was suffering in so many different ways. Job began to take on the, the voice of the complaint and say, you know, i it's not fair that God has done any of this to me. I'm not sure why I'm experiencing any of these things. And finally, when God confronts him, what does he say in response? Job 42, verse 6, he says, literally, I abhor myself. I despise myself. It's another way of saying I'm indignant with my own sin. How dare I challenge God? How dare I feel this way? There's something wrong with me. 
But again, that only comes from godly grief. If I don't experience godly grief, then I'm never going to be mad at my sin. I'm going to be mad at someone else for bringing out my sin because I care more about my reputation than I do about being right with God. Romans 12.9, Paul summarizes the Christian life in, in one verse. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. They're not unrelated. If you're going to let love be genuine, you have to abhor evil. Not just theirs, but mine. If I abhor evil in myself, I will learn how to genuinely love another person. If I don't abhor the evil in myself, I won't even begin to know how to love someone else. It, it won't happen. Fourth, God the grief also is manifest by fear. Now again, Paul's not referring to the fear of exposure. Uh, he's not referring to someone who's hiding in the darkness, refuses to come out into the light. Nor is he referring to merely the fear of man, what they might think of us, or, or even the type of fear that runs counter to love. Again, John says... If, uh, there is no fear in love. If you love someone, you're not afraid of what might happen if you actually do the right thing. So it's not that type of fear. Nor is it the type of fear of damnation, right? So you've admitted sin, I guess that means I'm going to hell. No. If I know the assurance of salvation in Christ Jesus, I'm not afraid to admit my sin because I already know that I have a Savior who has covered it over in love. He shed his blood for, for me. Why did he shed his blood? Why did he willingly go to a cross to endure not just the affliction of the cross itself, but the hot anger of God? Why? Because of me. We don't meditate upon that enough. Not because of what I did in the past, but because what I still do in the present. He still had to do that for me. If I get that, maybe it will lend itself to humility and learning how to love someone else. If I don't get that, then I'm going to continue to unlash, unleash my anger in some other way in the wrong manner. I'm always amazed, and I've shared this with you before, when I see a person who, who just doesn't get this concept at all. So it's not just a a fear of God, but it's also a fear of God's authority. And this is what we're beginning to see in this text is that Paul says that he recognizes their repentance by how they began to treat him and how they treated Titus. He says even when Titus came to them, they, they received him with fear and trembling. Again, this is not a horror, horrific type of thing, but rather with great respect and a fear of God saying, how could I possibly treat one of God's men who are trying to bring us to genuine repentance to treat him like dirt? The scariest times I think I've ever had as a, as a pastor, as an elder in the church, is when I have had to meet with the someone who has lost all respect for any leadership. They don't care that you're an elder. They don't care that you're a pastor. They don't care what God says. They don't care at all. They've lost the fear of God. They've lost that reverence for God. And when they finally have to talk to you about something, man, it gets ugly. Because they have no fear, no godly fear. The person has a lot of fears, but in the wrong way. But Spurgeon said it this way. Um, uh, Spurgeon had two sons who also became pastors. 
And uh, he, he told one of them in the midst of one of the conflicts he was experiencing in the church, he urged his son, fight the devil, but love the deacons. It's a great expression. So where I'm from, uh, and where I went to seminary, Wake Forest is related to, if you know the Wake Forest that's now in Winston-Salem, what are they known as? What's their mascot? The demon deacons. That's not an exaggeration. <laughs> there are times in which deacons can act like demons. There are times in which elders can act even worse. In case you're wondering what the difference, in the Presbyterian church, our elders function like Baptist deacons did in Spurgeon's time. But basically it's the idea that you have leadership who are trying to do the right thing. We don't always say it the right way. There are many ways that we might convolute things and, 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 and mismanage things, et cetera, et cetera. But nevertheless, we're still God's men trying to do the right thing. If you're going to focus your anger on anyone, don't focus it on the leaders of the church. Focus it on yourself. Focus it on the devil until you can confess that sin and, and move on with it. You remember um, Jude's epistle, that really short one right before the book of Revelation, the one that most people skip over so they can get right to the apocalyptic stuff that makes no sense to most people? Jude's epistle, verse 8, he says that there were some in the church who rejected authority and they blasphemed the glorious ones of God. So in other words, they have no respect for any church leadership at all. And I, I guarantee you, in a room this size, there's probably at least five people in this room right now who have either been here for a while or have come from another church and have no respect whatsoever for leaders in a church because they've been through something. And they think that every leader's like that other person or, or what happened or they never did bother to look at what may be had happened in their own life, and so they just reject le leadership altogether. They want nothing to do with the church. They don't ever want to join the church ever again because they've been burned, et cetera, et cetera. And so they begin to take on this attitude that Jude is warning people against who reject authority. Because when you reject the authority of the church, you're rejecting God. It's Christ and his church. You can't have one without the other. It takes both. And so Jude uses the example of the archangel Michael, even when he is confronting the devil over something, he rebukes him, but he doesn't pronounce a blasphemous judgment upon him, which is strange because you already know that the devil's judged. But yet, the archangel Michael is not even using that judgment upon him when he could, and yet, how many times have you heard someone in the church already judge someone as going to hell when they really don't know that person at all, they don't know their heart at all, or they're saying, well, that church is dead, or that those leaders are all, just so many quick prejudging going on here. And so he also used the example of Korah's rebellion. Remember that when Moses is out in the wilderness, Korah is one of the people saying, well, it's not just Aaron and Moses who could do this, but we can all do this too. And so they raise their hands up against Moses and Aaron and their leadership, and as a result, if you remember, the earth comes and swallows them whole. Why? Because God respects authority, and he's the one who has put those people in authority. So even if they're doing it wrong, even if they said it wrong, there's still some aspect of a fear and reverence that we ought to have. And if we don't have it, that's a, that's a huge sign of a lack of repentance. Fifthly, godly grief also is manifested through longing for the fellowship of God's church. If you read Paul's epistles, it's, uh, it's a recurring theme. With many different churches, he's continually saying how he longs for these people that he hasn't seen in a long time. 
He longs to be with them. He longs to share in their fellowship. He longs to enjoy their company and receive some encouragement by their gifts and by their testimony. All godly men and women have that same longing. They long to be with God's people in the house of God. They long for these things. And when a believer, for some reason, if they have grown hard of heart, you know, some root of bitterness has, has crept into them, and for some reason they've actually been barred from the Lord's Supper. In other words, they're not supposed to take it for a while until they come to their senses regarding their sin. The way it's supposed to work is that they immediately sense that they don't share in that same fellowship, that same wonderful sweet communion that they once had with the people of God. And as a result, because they don't get to share it, they want to repent. They want to be back with God's people in God's house. You see, church discipline is not a a punitive thing. It's meant to restore you to where you would long for the right things again, to long to be in a right relationship with God, long to be in a right relationship with His people, with the church. It's a good thing. And a believer, when they are confronted by their sin... And even if they didn't respond immediately the right way, and I I will say that the vast majority of us in many cases do not respond well the first time. But sometimes we give us a few minutes, we might come to our senses and come back and say, oh, you're right, I did it again, right? And why? Why do they do that? Because they want to have that relationship with you. They want to share that with you, that sweet fellowship with you. Not so the false professor. What happens when you confront them? They are gone like that. They're the first person to leave you. They're the first person to walk away and say, to hell with y'all. And they'll do it again and again and again. I have met people who have left seven churches. And they've just damaged one after the other after the other. And somehow it was always someone else's fault. Always. They don't care. Because they don't have that longing. They don't share that longing to be with people of God. They don't share that desire for reconciliation. They don't want it. They don't know how to love. They just don't. And as a result, this is what John says. First John 2, verse 19. He says, they went out from us. Why? Because they weren't of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued to be with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. Again, there, there are plenty of times, I think, where, when even true believers walk away from a church for a time and they've been hurt. I get it. And hopefully they'll come back. That does happen. But there are plenty of people who have been professing church members for years who have just done this again and again and again. I mean, I, 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 when, when we admit people into membership and I start to ask about the past, I'm like, so what happened to that previous church again? And what did you say? And how did you leave? And, you know, they, get, they, they clam up really quickly when you start asking those kinds of questions because they know they should have tried to reconcile with that person and they, they refuse to do it. They don't care. Paul says true repentance cares. It longs to be with the people of God. It's a huge difference. Then six, godly grief is also manifested through zeal. Paul speaks of a a zeal for God, but there's a zeal that's not according to knowledge. So in other words, you can have plenty of people who are zealous even for religious things, but still be zealous in the wrong way. Uh, if you remember, even one of the disciples was called the zealot, remember? You can be zealous for a lot of things, but not necessarily for the right things. So in verse 7, Paul 
rejoices that the Corinthians had a zeal to see Paul himself. In chapter 9, verse 2, Paul shares that they had a zeal to give to the saints in Jerusalem. In Romans 12, verse 11, Paul speaks of their zeal to serve God in the church. Titus 2, 14, uh, he speaks of their zeal for good works. So which kind of zeal is he referring to here? I think it's a zeal for all of these things, obviously. But to do all of these things, what do you have to have? You have to have the church. You have to be a part of the church. When you're zealously longing to be a help and a, a blessing to the body of Christ, you have to be a part of the body of Christ. They're zealous for these things. Again, the person who is not repentant does not have a zeal for these things. So if you, if you think of reconciliation this way, if one wants to work for Christ in his church, he will ensure that he is right with Christ in his church. The, the unbelieving, unrepentant person doesn't do that. Finally, let's, let's go to the seventh one. Godly grief is manifested by punishment. Now, this is an unusual one. That doesn't mean that the guilty party begins to immediately take a whip and start whipping their backs. I'm going to have penance after all. I'm going to hate myself in that way. There actually are people who do this. I don't know too many in Fenton who do this, but there are people all around the world, that especially like at times of Easter and what have you, that like the people that will carry a cross literally, you know, on the Via Dolorosa, and there are others that will like whip themselves. All the kinds called self-flagellation. Don't get confused with the other kind of flagellation, but it's the self-flagellation. They're constantly hurting themselves so that they would feel forgiven for the sins that they've committed. That's not at all what Paul is saying here. In fact, if we understand the gospel rightly, there is no more condemnation, no more punishment. For those who have trusted in Christ, right? Christ has already taken. He's already taken the full brunt of God's wrath. There's no reason for us to have to enter into that type of penance. There is no penance. Regardless of what you've been taught, what denomination you came from, there's no penance that we ever have to exert in order to be right with God. It simply comes through seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, after, after heeding Paul's rebuke concerning this matter, they're manifesting their desire to exert what you would call church discipline. So in other words, there's a difference. It's not clear in the English, but it's basically a difference between punishment and learning. So they're eager for that type of discipline that would actually help them to learn how to be a better disciple of Christ. And in this particular case, it starts, the punishment he's referring to, I think, is in reference to the fact that they have, in fact, now disciplined the guy that had committed this gross sexual immorality, that they refused to discipline at first because they felt like they were being mean by doing it. They felt like they ought to give him mercy. And I, I, I get that. All of us want to extend mercy. Uh, to, especially no one wants to be pointed out, you know, I'm going to wear the dunce cap or I'm going to be the person who wears the big S on my shirt or the big A or whatever it is. No one wants to have see someone else experience that. But nevertheless... You don't extend mercy to someone who refuses to repent. You still love them. You, you still try to pray for them and hope the best for them. But you're not giving them, you're not granting them mercy when you know that they need to learn. I think that's the part that the church has the hardest time with today. You know, I, in our culture, we don't know how to express dissatisfaction. We don't know how to disagree. We don't know how to point out there might be something wrong with your life. I mean, our, our culture loves tolerance. Our culture loves to support people who have done the most egregious things. 
That's not the MO of the church. The church is to call out truth when they see it, to speak it in love, but nevertheless still speak the truth. And so that entails that we have to actually want discipline and actually expect it to occur in the life of the church. But again, this is what happens oftentimes when the elders of the church or the deacons in whatever church you're at, if they even try to confront someone and then the rest of the church hears about it, maybe because we didn't communicate it well, they turn against the leadership of the church rather than assisting them in helping this brother come to repentance. And so again, I mean, I, I, I only keep bringing it up because Paul keeps bringing it up, so forgive me. But basically, it's the same thing. When you really get the gospel, you also get what discipline is for, that the Holy Spirit disciplines those he loves. And that's meant to be our attitude as well. So when, when these things happen, uh, the church has shown its repentance by actually following through with the discipline and the repentance that will actually occur. So let me give, give an example. Um, it's, it's so easy. If, if I, as a pastor, were to confront someone in their sin and then they bothered to share that with you, that was something that I had shared with them, and they say how awful I did it and blah, blah, blah. Your, your natural tendency would be like, oh, he's so awful. You hadn't heard what I had to say. You hadn't heard why I did it or anything of those things in nature. The, the person who hears this as a third party ought to go to say, well, let's, let's go and talk to him together. Let's make this right. If, if you really were accused wrongly and he did it so horribly, then let's go and fix this, right? Because we want to make sure that either one person has is, is had their day in court or the other person is actually getting what they need. Or it might be both people. Both, people, both of us might be in sin and both of us need to repent. A godly person will go through that act of discipline to make sure that it occurs. Godly grief grieves over sin. Both my own sin and the sin of my brother. It doesn't just allow it to fester. It doesn't just say, you know, that's his life, he can live however he wants. No. It grieves over sin in the life of the church. And so as a result, the church is also willing to do what's right. That's all he's saying here. Because godly grief hates sin and not the sinner, it does everything in its power to separate the sin from the sinner. It goes through this process. And that's what Paul is constantly trying to point out here. So how do we foster this kind of grief? How do you help the church hate sin? I was trying to say it in the most plain ways I know. Number one, don't lick your wounds. Rather, seek to sever your sin. Don't lick your wounds. Amputate. Radical amputation. Cut out the right eye. Cut out the right arm. Whatever it takes. Get rid of the sin. Number two, don't close your heart. Soften your soul. It's a big difference. Number three, don't run from the pain. Rejoice in the healing. It will be painful. When you deal with sin, it's always painful. But there's joy in the healing when it's done. Fourthly, don't shoot the messenger. Especially me. Heed the message of the gospel that will restore you to a right relationship with Christ. 
Why do I believe in this so much? Because I believe in the gospel. When you read what we read in Lamentation 3, how could you have joy in the midst of the darkest day in the nation of Israel? Why? Because the same man, Jeremiah in this case, who's representing all of Israel, is expressing the sin and the woe and the bitterness and all the things that come with it. There's still this note of hope. And what is that note of hope? God's mercies are new every morning. That I can admit my sin. Why? Because Christ has already covered my sin. I can admit that I've done wrong. Why? Because Christ has already paid for all my wrongs. I don't have to run. I don't have to hide. I don't have to get angry with all the wrong things. If I get the gospel, I love Christ and I hate sin. And I love those who point out my sin. That third part is essential to this. I love Christ, I hate sin, and I love those who point out my sin. Don't confuse that. As we're praying again through the Lord's Prayer each day, remember, when we're asking God to forgive us our debts, we're expecting Him to actually point out those debts. How does He often do that? Through those who love us. So pay attention, put your hands in Christ, put your soul in Christ's hands. Let's pray together. Father, again, we we come to you and we know on paper this is the right way. Uh, We also know that um, we have done it the wrong way many, 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 many times. We also know that there have been times where we've done it wrong in the beginning and later have fixed it or else started out right and then majorly messed it up. Father, again, we pray that there are any here today or any that have left us as a body because of these types of issues, Lord, that you would help us as a body to know how to love, how to restore, how to reconcile. We pray, Father, that the truth would be known, that our love would be stronger. Lord, help us to understand the gospel. Help us to cling to Christ. Help us to love you and to love our neighbor, we pray.